Chapter Fourteen of the Directory of the Devout Life by F. B. Meyer. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Marianne. Chapter Fourteen, The Disciples' Prayer. Matthew Chapter Six, Verses Nine to Thirteen. Devout men, as their life unfolds, increasingly turn to prayer, not prayers in the plural, but prayer in the singular. Therefore Psalm 90, which seems to register the mature experience of Moses, ends with the prayer, Let thy work appear unto thy servants, and thy glory unto their children, and let the beauty of the Lord our God be upon us. It was as though, after a long life of intense activity, in which the great lawgiver had borne the people on his bosom as a nursing father, and when the activities of his life were drawing to a close, he was impelled to turn to prayer and catch up the yearnings, desires, and purposes of his life in one constant petition. As we grow older, our prayers tend to become simpler and shorter, and more after the method of this prayer, which is so short and yet so deep, so brief that we may say it within three minutes, and yet so comprehensive and concise that to be able to say it from the heart and continually is the very consummation and climax of the religious life. This prayer has been called the Lord's Prayer. It might be more fitly known as the Disciples' Prayer, but it bears forevermore the Master's touch. It has been said that it was not original, and that these phrases had been on the lips of godly men in a former time. We cannot be surprised at that, because our Lord was always meditating on the prayers of psalmists and prophets, appropriating them to his own needs, and weaving them into his own communion with the Father. But if the materials were furnished him from ancient quarries, this prayer is the structure of his own thought, and as we tread its stately aisles, so severe in their simplicity, so majestic in their strength and far distances, we cannot but think of the myriads who have stood on the same pavement, been moulded by the same sentences and thoughts, and have found in these seven short but comprehensive petitions sufficient expression for their deepest, holiest moments. Lonely sufferers and crowded congregations, little children just clasping their hands in prayer, and the saintly leaders of the church, the Roman Catholic and the Protestant, the Anglican and the Nonconformist, the servant and his master, all their differences of creed or station, sex or nationality, are forgotten, as they enter to stand together within the precincts of this exquisite and noble structure. It is resonant with their voices, saturated with their tears, and ringing with their adorations. If, therefore, it may be called the Lord's Prayer, because he wove together the golden threads of olden time into the exquisite pattern which for symmetry and beauty cannot be surpassed, it may also be called the Disciples' Prayer, because in its use the whole church has become one. Twice during our Lord's ministry he recited it. In the first instance it was from the mountain of Beatitudes in his manifesto to his disciples and the great world of men. On the second occasion he had been praying in a certain place, perhaps at early dawn, whilst his disciples beheld him wrapped in devotion, they probably remained at a reverent distance, and when he ceased, they came to him, and one as spokesman for the rest said, Lord, teach us to pray. What a beautiful illustration of the power of unconscious influence! Christ does not appear to have been constantly insisting on the necessity of prayer, but he was constantly praying himself. His followers knew that in the early morning he would depart into a solitary place for prayer, and they could recall nights in which he had sent them to their homes while he climbed to the mountain slopes to be alone with God. And had they not seen the results, in the transfiguring glory that stole upon his face, the composure with which he passed through scenes of turmoil, the power that demons owned? What wonder that they desired to possess the sacred talisman of prayer! Happy will it be for the church and the world when the glories of true devotion will be so apparent that men shall be attracted by the evident gains of it to say, Teach us also to pray.
these concise and beautiful petitions may therefore be used as a form of prayer in luke the preface is when ye pray say in matthew the preface is after this manner or fashion pray ye it seems undoubted then that our lord meant his disciples to use these very words when ye pray say crisis often arises in our experience when we are glad enough to know exactly what to say it is a good thing to have a mould into which to pour the molten metal of fervent hearts and sometimes when the spirit of prayer is burning low the soul will catch fire at the expressions used by those who have preceded it and will sweep up into the presence of god in horses and chariots of fire forms of prayer may be used as aids to devotion but they must never become substitutes for the free outpouring of the soul but probably the loftiest use of this prayer is as a model it tells us the sort of petitions we ought to offer and their fit and fair proportion to each other we learn that requests for life's sustenance may fairly have a place in our daily prayer that we are perfectly right in talking freely to god about the recurring demands of food and clothes about the common round the daily task though only one place in seven is to be given to these three are to be devoted to the needs of our inner life and the rest are to be surrendered to adoration and intercession then again we learn that our request for ourselves should always be subordinate to those we make for the coming of the kingdom and the hallowing of the name these come first in the prayer and they should come always first in our thoughts and lives this prayer therefore seems to be a kind of copy-book at the head of each page there stands a petition in copperplate for us to go over repeating it exactly and below there is a blank sheet for us to fill in with petitions of our own formed on the model of that at the head of the page and yet as different as the spirit of god and the exigencies of the moment may suggest we may obtain some general suggestions for prayer one prayer should be direct the jewish proverb said everyone who multiplies prayer is heard they would babble forth a monotony of unmeaning sound as the mohammedans incessantly repeat allah and the hindus for days together repeat the monosyllable om and it was this senseless unmeaning repetition of words which our lord forbade use not vain repetitions as the heathen do let your petitions be simple direct intelligent say what is in your heart concisely thoughtfully earnestly come to your father as a child and tell him all your desires and having made your definite requests known await the definite replies which he will certainly send your father which seeth in secret shall recompense thee of course there are hours in all lives of gethsemane agony when the soul can only lie low and crushed before god unable to formulate many petitions and only able to repeat again and again feebly the name of jesus or the phrase he used so often in the hour of his own sorrow thy will be done but this experience makes laws for itself for the most part we must be careful not to pray by rote or by the hourglass a prayer which occupies as this does only three minutes to repeat is prayer two prayer must be reverent reverence is suggested by the words which art in heaven far be it from me to say a single word to discourage that holy familiarity with which the child of god approaches the father the tenderest words the completest confidence the closest intimacy will all be welcomed and reciprocated but let it ever be remembered that the mercy seat is a throne and the father a great king his abode is not only a home but a palace on whose floors angels tread with reverence or standing veil their faces with their wings let us hesitate for a moment on the threshold of our prayers and reverently unloose our shoes from off our feet god is in heaven and thou upon earth be not rash with thy mouth 
and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. 3. Prayer must be unselfish. When ye pray, do not say I, me, mine, but we, us, our. Not my father, but our father. Instead of teaching in abstract phrases the duty of intercession, the Lord so weaves it into the structure of this prayer that no man can use it without becoming a priest and pleading for his brethren. It is remarkable how, on the other hand, our Lord insists on lonely prayer. Enter into thy closet and shut thy door, and pray to thy father who is in secret. And yet a moment after he shows that that secret prayer is not to be selfish prayer, but linked with the needs of the great family outside the chamber door. The prayer that does not recognize the needs of others, as well as its own, is not the loftiest prayer. A true appreciation of fatherhood always involves the idea of brotherhood. As Jesus said, I ascend to my Father, but he is also your Father, to my God, but he is also yours. For what are men better than sheep or goats, that nourish a blind life in their veins, if, knowing God, they lift not hands in prayer, both for themselves and those who call them friend. In the moments of conviction of sin, we feel to stand alone. No one has sinned as we, and we say, God be merciful to me, the sinner. I have sinned and perverted that which was right, and it profited me not. In hours of awful sorrow we feel to stand alone. Grief has a marvelous power of isolation, Lover and friend stand afar off as we cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But in our normal experiences we realize that we are drops in a great ocean, members in one body, units in the multitude which no man can number, and who stand before the throne of him that liveth for ever and ever, saying, Our Father. The door is always open, and... As you enter it, be sure to say, Our Father, by which you include not simply your own brothers and sisters after the flesh, your mother and father, your wife and children, and the immediate relationships of your home, but a great company which is beyond estimation. The soul that can say, Father, is always conscious of being part of a vast brotherhood and sisterhood. Yonder is a woman who once lived to tempt but now with a broken heart, in her poor, ill-furnished, dilapidated room, she is coming back to God with words of penitence and contrition on her lips. Is she included? Yes. Our. Yonder is a poor slave, whose flesh is quivering from the lash, and who, not noticed by man, is turning in his despair to God. Is he included? Yes. Our. And yonder is a man who has always misunderstood and suspected you, has put unkind constructions upon your actions and words, and has imputed motives to you that you altogether repudiate. Is he included? Yes. Our. Again, here is another whom you have been accustomed to look upon as a heretic, because he does not exactly pronounce your shibboleth, though he holds the deity and saving work of our Lord. Is he included? Yes, our. 4. The true standpoint of prayer is the honor and glory of God. If we take away the invocation and doxology, this prayer consists of seven petitions. The first three concern God, the hallowing of his name, the coming of his kingdom, the doing of his will. In this our Lord Jesus would join with his disciples. Then comes the single petition for daily bread. In this, again, our Lord could join his voice with ours. Indeed, the whole unfallen animal creation and all holy beings throughout the universe may in their measure add their volume of prayer that God would supply them with the sustenance they need. But, in the last three, prayers are enumerated for forgiveness, succor against temptation, and deliverance from evil, 
which are only applicable for ourselves as fallen creatures. If you desire to pray aright, enter your room where God awaits you, kneel quietly before you attempt to address Him, that you may realize His presence, and the sights and scenes of the earth cease to distract. Though it may take many minutes before the silt drops to the bottom and leaves the stream of your soul flowing pure and clear, the waiting will not be lost time. It is only thus that the blue heaven will be mirrored in the calm surface of your soul. The next step is to unite yourself with God's mighty purpose. Do not, in the first instance, ask what you want for yourself. Compel the intruding crowd of daily need and want to remain outside the fence with which you surround the base of the mountain of prayer, and go up alone to meet God, desiring to look at the needs of the world and at your own little life as subordinate to all that will make him loved, honored, and adored. Put God's interests before your own. Enthrone God in your thoughts and petitions. Put first things first. Go forth and stand beneath the stars and count their number. Mark their mighty orbits. Realize the immensity of the sweep of God's movements. Do this before you begin to count the glowworms at your foot or the fireflies that glance around you in the dark. On a campaign, the true soldier is more eager for the safety of the whole army than he is mindful of his personal need. His first thought is of that which will make for his country's welfare, and he only puts in a plea for himself that he may better serve the interests of his fatherland. At first, this seems to be an impossible ideal, but it is, nevertheless, a true one, and we shall come to stand upon this pinnacle if we sincerely desire and intend that our whole aim and purpose in this mortal life should be to secure that God's name shall be hallowed, His kingdom come, and His will be done. When we have poured out our soul in petitions for these, we may begin to urge our own need of daily bread and deliverance from evil. Our Father the suppliant must realize that there is a bond of nature between God and himself, such as exists between parent and child. This has only to be suggested for its importance to be recognized. A child has a peculiar claim on its father. You brought me into existence. You gave me the nature I possess. You understand its movements and yearnings and instincts by a quick sympathy. You are bound by the strongest reasons to give me that which you know I need. I am part of you, and therefore lay claim that, as you nourish and cherish yourself, so you should nourish and cherish me. No stranger can introduce such tones into his speech. He may plead the claims of his need, of humanity, of gratitude, of friendship, but he cannot speak from the platform of a common nature, Amid a crowd of statesmen, state officials, court functionaries, attached and devoted friends, stands a young and slender boy. But there is a tie between him and the monarch, who is the center of the glittering throng, which no other person, however noble, can claim, and his requests have, therefore, a deeper and more peremptory demand than those of others. It is thus Jesus teaches us, that so we should pray. There must be an innerness, a filial confidence, an entrance into the heart of God, because He is your Father by adoption and grace. And whilst this must be your feeling towards Him, He will reciprocate it. Nay, He does not wait for you to approach Him thus. He anticipates your coming. As Judah said of Jacob, we may say of God, His life is bound up in the lad's life, like as the father pitieth his children, he pities us. He loves us not in a mass, but each alone. His family is not larger to him than ours to us, and, as we have a niche for each individual child, so has God. We may refuse to trust him and to avail ourselves of his help, but we cannot alter those words of Jesus. The Father himself loveth you. There are three conditions, in obedience to which we may realize that God is our Father. 
of course there is only one only begotten son only one that can spell his name with a capital s all others are sons with a small s there is an impassable gulf between the divine sonship and the human sonship however high and to whatever degree of nearness that sonship may be raised one we all of us believe with the heathen that we have sprung from god this has been the cherished thought of man in every age and in every religion the word jupiter is made up of two words zeus pater the heavenly father and travel where you may under every sky and amid men of every tongue you will always find that this is their deepest thought that there is an all-father from whom man has sprung but this is not the closest relationship and it is not by this track that you will come home to abide most nearly to the father's heart two then also the Jews ever cherished the special belief that their nation stood in a unique relationship to God as Father. Surely, they cried, in hours when anxiety and distress lay heavy upon their land, surely thou art our Father. Though Abraham be ignorant of us, and Israel acknowledge us not, surely thou art our Father. There was a kind of national relationship, therefore, between God and the Jews, but we cannot claim to stand with them on that ground, and the Lord Jesus showed that this sacred covenant relationship has been forfeited by their sin. If, said he, God were your father, you would recognize me, implying that they had no right to call God father because they had broken the covenant tie. Therefore he came, and this is the very heart of religion, that he might, by the Holy Spirit, reproduce in the children his own nature and spirit. It is only as we receive him that we have the right to become sons of God, even as we believe in his name. 3. The Apostle says distinctly, We are all sons of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And because we are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, whereby we call him Abba, Father. Moreover, in that remarkable second epistle of St. John, the beloved Apostle says, and the words are very significant, He that abideth in the teaching, that is, of the gospel, the same hath both the Father and the Son. From all these and many similar references, we may judge that, though we may belong to God as his offspring, we can never enter into the closest relationship until we are united by faith to his Son, who was born of a human mother, died on the cross, and has now carried our nature to the right hand of God. By his Spirit we receive that nature into our own, and are thus in living affinity with the Son of God, who said, I ascend to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God, as though he desired us to realize that by union with him God became our Father in almost, though not quite, the same sense in which he was his own. Hallowed be thy name. The name of God is his nature, his attributes, the various properties that go to make him what he is, and when we ask that it should be hallowed, we ask that all which obscures the character of God should be swept away as mists before the rosy light of dawn. We thank God for all that is known of his wonderful being, for the message of nature, for the revelations given to seers and prophets, for the life and death of the Son, for the gift of the Holy Spirit. But there are still great unexplored places. By reason of their sinful ignorance or superstition, men have misunderstood and misrepresented the character of God. Therefore we pray that in this world, and in all other worlds, His glorious personality may be understood, appreciated, and loved. Thy kingdom come. In one of those sublime flights with which the epistles of St. Paul abound, he tells us that the time is coming when the Son shall deliver up the kingdom to God, even the Father, when he shall have abolished all rule and authority and power. From this we are at liberty to infer that the kingdom was originally the Father's, 
and that by man's sin and fall it has been alienated from his control, but that for purposes of recovery and redemption it has been handed over to the well-beloved Son. The Lord Jesus became incarnate for the purpose of regaining the kingdom by his agony, blood, and tears. Though it is not as yet his, it is being acquired, and it shall be his, and angel voices shall ring out the glad announcement that the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. When, therefore, we pray, Father, thy kingdom come, we are asking that the complete victory of Jesus Christ may be hastened, that he may speedily triumph over all obstacles and enemies, that all tyranny may be extinguished, all corruption exposed, that truth may reign in government, art, and science, that trade may be free from chicanery and fraud, and that he may speedily send forth his angels to gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them that do iniquity, destroying that last enemy, death, and bringing in the golden age when all men shall know and love the Father, and become his obedient and loving children. Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. There is a close connection between the name and the will. The name is the being of the Father, the nature of God, what he is in himself, the sum total of his divine attributes. The will is the energy of God, going forth perennially and omnipotently to the accomplishment of his own divine and loving purpose. Clearly, then, the will and the name are but two sides of the same infinite, holy, and loving being, who is love. Therefore, whenever we say, Thy will be done, we shall begin by saying, Father, our Father which art in heaven, Thy will be done, as in heaven, so on earth. It is because people catch up this petition suddenly, and without ascending to it through the regular gradients of the prayer, that it often seems so stern and terrible. But if only we can begin to say, My Father, then add, Our Father, and finally think of His nature, which, like some mighty ocean, full, deep, and placid, mirroring upon its surface the blue sky of eternity, is always sending forth tides of good will and peace in heaven and on earth, painting the tiniest flower that casts its shadow upon the lawn, and steering the mightiest world that rolls through space, always rising up in fountains of tenderness through heaven and earth. Then we shall cease to utter this prayer as the address of the stoic, or the cry of the grieved heart, or the reluctant expression of resignation on the part of the suffering soul, and it will become the anthem, the psalm of the whole life. Father, Father, in all worlds, in all ages, and in my little life, let the energy of thy will work itself out to its fruition. But is not God's will always done, whether or no? Can any man resist it? Can any angel or demon overthrow it? Is it of use? Is it wise? Does it serve any purpose to be ever saying, Thy will be done? Surely it will be done, come what may. He doeth what he will among the armies of heaven and the inhabitants of the world, and none can stay his hand and say, What doest thou? True, but are you quite sure that God's best will is always done? One is quite prepared to admit that generally, and on the whole, God's will is done, but is his best will done? The royal will may be done, but is the Father's will done? And is not that the great difficulty in our world, that God's will is resisted, while something which is second or third best is substituted. The failure between God's best, and the best which becomes possible and practical because of our resistance, is that which brings discomfort, sorrow, friction, and pain into our lives. But if from today we would say, Heavenly Father, let thy will be wrought perfectly, heaven would descend to brood in our breasts, and paradise would come again to earth. How many weary faces there are, tired and broken hearts, lives that have not fulfilled their purpose and promise. And is not this because 
though God has been working upon them for many years, he has met with so much tough resistance and obstinacy that he has not been able to realize his cherished plan. If only we would let the Father have his will with us, to what a height of blessedness and peace and strength might we not come? Young men and women, if, before you take the false and rash step, before you have allowed your own passions and desires to dictate your life course, you would only let God mould you as tough iron in fire, what fitness there would be in that prayer. Let thy will, the best will, the Father's will, be done as it is done in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. In the Greek language there are two words for bread. First, cytos, cornbread. This, however, is not the word used by our Lord, but another, artos, which is a wider word, standing for food. It is as though our Lord knew that this prayer of his was to be worldwide in its use, and therefore selected a term which would cover equally the rice of the Hindu, the blubber of the Esquimaux, the macaroni of the Italian, and the oatmeal of the Scot, a general word standing for food. As he bids us to offer this prayer, several things are suggested. These words suggest great rest of heart about daily supplies, because, if Jesus Christ taught us to pray for our daily bread, he implied that we had only to use the laws of prayer and labor, and God would supply all our need. He would never have put into our lips a prayer which was not in line with the thought and purpose of his Father. I know not what the anxieties of your life may be, about your health or investments or situation, but I do assure you that since Jesus Christ has put this prayer into your lips, it is already a pledge on God's part that he will feed you with food convenient and supply the body with all that it requires for its daily needs. A body thou hast prepared for me, and since thou hast implanted its daily recurring appetites, thou art surely responsible for their necessary satisfaction. It is possible, of course, to indicate many people, perhaps God's children, who may be suffering from hunger and privation. How is it that their food is so scanty and inconsistent? I reply, May there not be some lack in their faith, and may it not be that they have not because they ask not, or because they fail to exercise definite faith in God? God loves to give, not bread alone, but fish. They saw a fire, and fish laid thereon, and bread. Not necessaries only, but luxuries. There is many a pang of hunger in human nature which remains when the physical deprivation and want have been met. In fact, a good many would find it comparatively easy to suffer physical hunger if they were delivered from suffering other unsatisfied appetites of the nature which are always crying out, Give! Give! For instance, how many of us are hungering for human love, sometimes to the point of absolute starvation, looking eagerly for one tiny crumb to fall from a beloved hand, or from the banquet on which others feast so bountifully? Are there not some whose minds are voracious for truth? They desire to understand mysteries that baffle, to penetrate the heavy mist that veils the eternal mountains. Theirs is the spirit of John Foster, who would talk with rapture of the revelations that waited on the other side of death. Besides these, are there not some whose deepest nature cries out for God, for that bread of life that comes down from heaven, for more of the indwelling and the nourishment of his character? These are they who have entered into the meaning of the Saviour's own words. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceedeth out of the mouth of God. When, therefore, we kneel before God in prayer and utter this petition, with some the words mean, Give us today some gleam of human love, some sign that our work is appreciated, and is telling upon others for good, or truth upon which our minds may feed and grow strong, for they that know God are strong and do exploits. And above all, feed our spirits with thyself, for thou hast implanted an appetite after the unseen and eternal, which can never be met by anything which is merely material and temporal. When we say, Give us graciously and freely bread for today, 
do we not imply that all good and perfect gratifications must come from God? Do you not like to emphasize that word, give? Do you not think that it is a truer conception of life than that we must snatch at any gratification which is within our reach? How often we are tempted to make a raid on what promises to appease the yearnings of our affection, to extract some word of appreciation, to press into precincts where we have no right to stand, and to ask for gifts from men which they have no right to bestow. Yet, when we say this prayer from our hearts as Jesus meant us to say it, we look up to God's face and say, Father, Thou madest our frame, Thou understandest its appetites, Thou art well acquainted with all the yearnings, hopes, and fears that pass through our nature, and I, Thy child, will take satisfaction from no hand but Thine. Give me what I really need for all the necessary appetites of today. Then wait expectantly before God, till there be some communication of himself, some arrangement of his providence, some sending of Titus, or the advent of a letter, or telegram, or parcel, the glint of some new truth, or a text from the Bible, or a paragraph in a biography, something in which God shall himself give us our daily bread. Does your life seem almost intolerable in its punery and precariousness of subsistence? Then turn to the Father and say, I am determined to wait on thee all day, not turning the stones into bread by an alienation of power or talent with which I am endued, but prepared to wait until thou shalt open thy hand and satisfy my need, or send thine angels to minister." Surely God would never have placed within the scope of human nature any hunger, which is in itself natural and innocent, without pledging himself at the same time to give it due nourishment and support. Besides, look to nature. The birds of the forest seek food which has been stored for them in the berries of the autumn. The fish, as they flash from the lake, find the fly provided for them. The young lions, as they roar through the forest and seek their meat from God, find that he opens his hand and gives it. And it is impossible to suppose that he will starve those appetites which he has implanted. You may have to hunger a little, in order that more of the evil in the appetite may be eliminated, that its passion may die down, that what is wrong may be extracted. But the desire itself, in so far as it is part of the nature which he has given, will surely be gratified somehow, some when. Wait on the Lord, therefore, and be of good courage. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. No man has a right to utter that prayer unless he is prepared, so far as he can, to answer it. Obviously it demands that he should be prepared to work for his living, that he should go forth in the morning and toil through the hours of the busy day, coming back weary at night. It implies that he should put his shoulder to the wheel, it implies also that he should not earn for himself alone, but for others, and that, in so far as in him lies, he should minister to their hunger. A man has no right to pray thus who is not also prepared to untie his purse-strings, and, when there is really need for bread, to give it. But in a deeper sense the same thought holds true. We saw just now that hunger is possible for affection, for appreciation, for truth, for God— and when we say, Give us this day our daily bread, we really include all lonely hearts, all who weary for a smile, all who are pining for love, all who are seeking for truth, all who want God, and, taking your stand amongst this ragged, eager, hungry crowd, you, as their spokesmen say, Give all such their daily bread. Does it not mean also, that if you know some weary soul needing a kindly word, you should speak it. That, if you know of one who is famishing for human love, you should, if possible, pass some on. That, if there are within your reach those who need the truth of God, and you can supply it, it should not be lacking. That, if there are any who need that impulse of new vigor which comes from the touch of a spiritual man or woman to reinvigorate, reanimate, and re-inspire, none of these should be wanting. Answer this prayer so far as you may, 
and just because the world is so hungry and weary and famishing, go forth and be its breadwinners and its bread-givers. As far as you can, help to alleviate the despair and hopelessness, the misery and the sin of men, by passing on the bread of God, the bread of life, the bread of love, the bread of hope upon which you feed. Share your last crust with another. If you get a glint of light, flash it on. If you get a new truth, communicate it. If you get a baptism of the Holy Ghost, never rest until others rejoice in it too. And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Every word in this prayer deserves our thought. One might dwell at length on the conjunction, and, for it is remarkable that by it this petition is conjoined to that for daily bread, these only of all the petitions in this prayer are linked together. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. The conclusion is an obvious one, that we need forgiveness as often as we need our daily bread, that our need for forgiveness is as urgent as our need for daily food, and that the forgiveness of God is as lavish as His giving is, which stores the cornfields with the golden grain, and spreads so richly the repast of fruits and vegetables for human need. Do you recognize this? Are you conscious of this deep need for forgiveness? Do you experience cravings for it, insatiable as the cravings of hunger for food, are you aware that in God's sight your soul is starving just because you have not learned to know your own deep need? The anodyne of worldly engagement has made you oblivious to the hunger of your spirit. But if you truly knew yourself, you would never lift your heart to thank God for your food without pleading for forgiveness, and there would be the recurrent sense that even in your happiest, holiest days there are things that need to be forgiven, the blood needs to be applied, the sense of God needs to mantle your soul. Give me daily bread. I want that. But as often as I need it, grant me forgiveness, too. The Greek word used by Luke, and translated trespasses, means to miss the mark. Every one of us aims, as we hope truly, at the mark, but we miss it, and we come back like the prodigal, saying, Father, I have missed the mark and I meant to be a good and holy and dutiful son. I aimed at it in my early life, but as the years passed I have missed it. But in Matthew our Lord sets forth another thought, that sin is debt, that it is a failure to pay our dues. If the one is the positive, this is the negative side. Trespass is positive, debt negative. We have done the things we ought not, is trespass. We have not done the things that we ought, is debt. Every relationship means responsibility. Every tie by which we are bound to other men and women has its obligation, and there are times when the sense of our debts overwhelms us. Who is there of the holiest and best among us that is not sometimes absolutely overwhelmed by the sense of the obligations which have not been discharged, of the grievous debts which remain unpaid? There is not a single man living who has ever perfectly discharged his debts to other souls, and certainly none has discharged them to the Almighty. Warning bells are sometimes so constructed that they move with every movement of the waves. Some are therefore perpetually tolling. Every surge causes them to yield their monotonous tone. Do you not realize that conscience is always tolling the bell of ought, of obligation, of dues not realized? Forgiveness, in the old Anglo-Saxon, is forth-giving. It is what you give forth, what you give away, what passes from your hand. The Greek word is to remit, to cancel, to dismiss, so that what has existed as an obligation ceases to be such. Our Lord then teaches us to ask that God would so remit what has been wrong, so cancel what has been left unpaid, that though in a sense we shall never be able to make right what is wrong to our fellows, yet the guilt of it will no longer accrue to us. When a man is truly forgiven, he may claim not only that the guilt will pass off his own soul, 
but that God's repairing hand will make right what has been left wrong, adjusting our own undischarged obligations, so that those souls which have been wronged by us may, by his good hand, somehow be compensated. Sin is debt, but there is forgiving, remission, the putting absolutely away. The fact that our Lord taught us to use this prayer proves that we may count on an answer because he was the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, and he has taken away its sin. When God says, Forgiven, he also says, Restored, and when the soul looks wistfully at those whom it has wronged and says, How about these? God seems to say, I know the debt incurred, I have forgiven thee, and I will now repair. Then the blessed Spirit of God reaches out to the souls whom we have wronged. By a touch he transmutes the wrong, and into the wound pours the oil and balm. When a child of God understands that, his heart becomes very pitiful. Having felt the agony of his own indebtedness and the joy of forgiveness, he begins to look around, and, instead of saying me, he says, our. He thinks of his dear ones, and pleads, like Job, each morning, Forgive the sins of my home. He thinks of the neighborhood in which he dwells, and says, O my God, I pray for these men and women around me, that thou wouldst forgive them. Then, as a priest, he takes the whole world into his embrace, and pleads, O God, for the sake of thy son, forgive them, they know not what they do. The answer to that prayer is a Pentecost, in which men are pricked to the heart and led to cry for the mercy which God longs to show. Thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. The authenticity and validity of this doxology is questioned. Many ancient authorities, however, add it, and it does seem a natural termination for this glorious prayer. The kingdom is God's, though his claims are set at naught by men who say, let us break his bands asunder and cast away his cords from us. Yet God is king. I shall never forget that archway in Damascus which for centuries has looked down upon the misrule of the Turk, but which bears the deep-cut inscription, Thy kingdom, O Christ, is an everlasting kingdom. Let us repeat it again and again. Thine is the kingdom. Thine is the power, he has the power to set up his kingdom, to overcome evil with good, hate with love, and darkness with light. Whatever ideals he may have raised in the heart, or for the world, to God belongeth power enough to make them facts in experience. Thine is the glory. This is the consummation of all. We are told that in the campaign of the great Napoleon, when his soldiers were being mown down in battle, they would turn towards him waving their hands, and with the last gasp of breath cry, Viva l'Empereur! So in life and death we cry, Glory to God in the highest. This is the climax of every prayer, the passion of life and death. Our Lord returns to one clause in the prayer emphasizing the thought which was already implicated in the structure of the fifth position when he told us that in asking for forgiveness of our debts we must always say, as we have forgiven our debtors. Notice the alteration made in the revised version. It is not, as we forgive, but, as we have forgiven. This carries us back, of course, to chapter 5, verse 24, where we are told to leave our gift at the altar and to be reconciled to our brother before we offer our gift. Our Lord does not mean, however, that God's forgiveness is measured by our own, or that our forgiveness is the cause of God's. Neither of these is the true rendering of this clause, but that God cannot forgive an unforgiving spirit. The fact is that the only sure index that our contrition and penitence are genuine is that we forgive. If we do not forgive, if our heart does not go out in pity and forgiving love, it proves that we must have been mistaken about ourselves, and have never attained that true position of soul before God in which He is able to forgive. Have you not noticed this in your own life, after the consciousness of forgiveness through the blood of the atonement, which is not mentioned here but implied, 
that the joy of forgiveness sometimes dies off your soul, and you question whether it was not a phantom, a bright and blessed dream. You wonder whether the words of absolution were really spoken, and wearily resume your burden. You cannot say why it is, but it seems as though your sin had come back again on you. Let me explain. In our Lord's parable, the king forgave the man who owed ten thousand talents, and the poor debtor was glad. But leaving his presence, he met a debtor of his own who owed him two hundred pence. This man he took by the throat, saying, Pay me what thou owest. The result was that he was brought back to the king, and his pardon cancelled, so that he again stood liable for the ten thousand talents. Why? Because he was unforgiving, and the unforgiving man loses the sense of God's forgiveness. The reason, then, why you have lost the sense of forgiveness is probably because you have stood upon your rights, have insisted upon other men doing to you what you have failed to do to God, and because you have been deficient in the forgiveness that you have sought. It is only when we have learnt to forgive that the Spirit of God maintains in our hearts the blessed consciousness of forgiveness. How is it with you? Do you forgive? Or are there men and women that you obdurately refuse to forgive? If there are, it shows that your own soul is not right before God. Your love to God is gauged by your love to men, your relationship to God is indicated by your relationship to your fellows. The man who does not love the brother whom he has seen cannot love the God whom he has not seen. Discover where you are today. If there are men and women in your life that you refuse to pray for and forgive, know that your heart is wrong with God. Do the first thing. Begin to pray for them and say, Forgive us. That man who has hurt me, that man who has wronged me, he needs forgiveness, but I need it equally. We are both in the wrong. I might have made it easier for him to do right than I have done. Begin with prayer. That is the first step. Compel yourself to pray, forgive us both. Second, ask for the opportunity to meet him. Third, Claim that when you meet, there may be in you the royalty of God's grace, that you may bear yourself with that rare, gracious love which covers the multitude of sins. Be willing that through your lips God's pitying mercy may pass forth in words of human kindness. May God, for the sake of Christ, cancel our indebtedness, and mercifully go over the wrongs of one's life done to others, and repair them. Then, if he gives us the opportunity, we may use it to act justly, kindly, lovingly, nobly, generously, towards those whom we have wronged. Forgive us our debts, and help us to forgive those that are indebted to us. End of chapter 14